You can turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 977. You're almost ready to turn the page to 978, but not this week. Let me open it in a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. God, our Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that every book is there, every line is there, uh, every story is there. It's there for a reason. These things are meant to teach us something, so I pray that our hearts and minds would be open to receive what needs to be taught, what we need to hear. Uh, it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Ephesians chapter 4, we've been in this chapter uh, for five Sundays. Today's the sixth, sun, sixth Sunday. We've been talking about unity, uh, but we found out unity, in case you didn't know, unity in, in Christianity is not the same as uniformity. So the Bible teaches there must be this essential unity that binds us together, but it doesn't mean uniformity in that everybody is cloned and looks and, uh, exactly like the other person. So the unity comes in verses 4 to 6, especially. It reads like this, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. That's a, a really compact uh, set of statements that define what unity is based upon, or founded upon. And we spent a week talking about that, so I'm not going to do it again. But then the uniformity, or, or the, the uh, rejection of uni uniformity, comes in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Where after four to six, it, you would almost expect him to say, and grace was given to all of us because we're one body according to the measure of Christ's gift. But it's a, there's that word but, it's a transition, it's a contrast. I know we've got all this unity and oneness and it's essential, but... God's, Christ's grace is gifted to individuals uniquely and differently, and that actually makes us more united, not less, according to the will of Christ. Because I see something in another believer that I, I am encouraged by, and I grow by, and you see the same as well in other people. So the diversity of giftedness enhances the unity that we're called to. But that needs explained, especially this idea, according to the measure of Christ's gift. At the very least, what that means is Christ's gift is given not on a first-come, first-served basis. It's not given on, on the basis of winner takes all. It's not given on the, on the basis of you go in the store and you pick your gift. It's given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he explains that. That's what we're going to work on this morning, the explanation of verse 7. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. It looks like this. <clears throat> Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying, he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So I've got the two words highlighted, it says. The it refers to scripture. 
The New Testament, by and large, and probably maybe nothing at all when Paul is writing this particular letter uh, to the Ephesians, there is no New Testament. So he's not referring to something that he wrote earlier. He's referring to something that was written in Scripture. In this case, it's actually Psalm 68. So Scripture says in the First Testament something that Paul is referencing. And he says, it says, not it said. And that's significant. And this is consistent with what is often found in the New Testament When it refers back to the Old Testament, it doesn't say, oh, and by the way, Scripture said this. It says this. And the point being, Scripture still speaks with authority. It still speaks to their time. It still speaks 2,000 years later to our time. Because one of the knocks on the Bible is, yeah, but the Bible's such an old book. It was written so many centuries ago by old people. And whatever it said back then surely doesn't apply to such an age as ours. And Paul would say, I beg to differ. Scripture doesn't just say something back then. It speaks now for those who have ears to hear. One of James Greer, Dr. Greer's, one of my favorite lines by Greer, and I just thought of this, but it's one of my favorite lines. He said, you know, when somebody tells me, look, I've read, the, I've read the Bible. I've spent time reading the Bible. And to be honest, I just don't get that much out of it. Dr. Greer said, that doesn't tell me anything about Scripture. That tells me a lot about the man. That tells me a lot about the man. So, Scripture says. We need to take a look at, closer look at what Scripture says, starting with Psalm 68. It looks like this. He's quoting Psalm 68, verse 18. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. That's what it says in Psalm 68, if you were to go back to the reference. The way Paul quotes it is, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now the biggest difference between the two, uh, what it says if you were to go back to Psalm 68 in your own Bible... And what you see Paul quoting is that there's a difference of here in the Old Testament, the First Testament, he's receiving gifts, and in Ephesians chapter 4, he's giving gifts. So the verb is really quite different between receiving a gift or giving a gift. Uh, Some commentators are, you know, they're they're a little troubled by this. They're not exactly sure what to do. And so uh, for some, the solution is, uh, well, Paul's an apostle. And Paul can quote the Old Testament, which has its own setting, and it meant something. In this case, it meant receiving something. But Paul can quote it. He's, being, he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he writes his letter. And so he can alter it and change it to actually giving gifts. And so both are true in their own setting. It's just Paul chose to change the verb for his setting, though it still has some correlation to what was actually written in Psalm 68. I think we can do better than that. I think we can do better. All of this is based on a historical word picture, which shouldn't, you've probably heard ideas like this before. That is, uh, in ancient world for sure, ancient civilizations that came and go, when, when a general was victorious, uh, he gained the spoils of war. That's always been true. It's still true to, that, to this day. Uh, if you are victorious in some conflict, some war, the spoils go to the victor. 
And in, in ancient cultures, the, the victor took the spoils and he paraded them back to his supporters or to his home country. Look at what we've won. This is, this is because of your support. It's because of what we've done, because we're a better people than these other, other cultures or civilizations. Here are our spoils. And they would also parade their, uh, those that they, they captured. And they sometimes would be in, you know, in these cages or they'd be in chains uh, or drugged by ropes uh, to horses or whatever, whatever it would be. And they would parade the, those that they captured because we won and everybody would know it. But it was also true that as they paraded all that they acquired in their victory, it wouldn't be unusual that then they would dole out some of the gifts especially to their supporters. This isn't an ancient practice. This happens like last year. I mean, it happens all the time every time there's an election. If there's two people running and it's fairly contentious and one wins, he now has certain privileges and rights where he can dole out some favors to the people that supported him. We do that. They do that. It's always been the case. To the victor goes a certain amount of control, authority, power, privilege, and you can dole out some benefits. That's what's being referred to. So in the, so in, the, in the two references, we have a lot in common. In both cases, we have an ascension on high. In both cases, we have captives being led. And in both cases, we have gifts. So there's a lot of similarity that Paul is drawing upon when he quotes Psalm 68. But if I were to ask the question in Psalm 68, who is it that's ascending... I think the answer is, in the context of Psalm 68, the, most, uh, the majority opinion is it's the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. The Lord is ascending. The Lord gained a victory. And to the, to the victor, to the Lord, goes the spoils. He brought his people into a land that he promised them, and they received many gifts because of the Lord's victory over the nations that were there that he displaced because the earth is the Lord's. <clears throat> Although, to be fair, Jewish uh, interpreters for, I think, as far back as you could imagine, Jewish interpreters take Psalm 68 as the you not referring to the Lord, but the you referring to Moses. Jewish interpreters say, uh, in their tradition, it's Moses who ascended, and what he took captive was the law of God, the gift of God. And he descended, and he gave that gift, the gift of God's law, to Israel. That's a minority opinion. Um, I prefer, I think in the larger context of Psalm 68, it's the Lord who ascends. But be that as it may, I thought I would mention it. I think the book of Numbers will help us quite a bit in understanding what's taking place here. Paul doesn't quote Numbers because it would require uh, a lot of backstory and it would require a lot of ink and papyrus or whatever he wrote on, animal skins, uh, that he doesn't have time for and the Holy Spirit knows what he's doing. So he didn't quote uh, the book of Numbers. But, but the book of Numbers really sheds a lot of light on what's taking place. So it looks something like this. We're going to be talking specifically about the tribe of Levi. I think you're familiar that Old Testament Israel was comprised of 12 sons, 12 tribes. Levi, though, did not receive any land inheritance. So in a lot of cases, they're not counted as one of the 12 because they didn't get land. So the extra land for the 12 tribes went to the two sons of Joseph, 
Manasseh and Ephraim. They received kind of a double blessing. But Levi is one of the tribes. It looks something like this. Let's start off with the idea that Israel was redeemed out of slavery in Egypt, and it all culminated in what we know as the Passover, the tenth plague. Because the Lord's people went down into Egypt. They became slaves. God raised up Moses through a series of ten plagues. They will be set free. But it's not until the tenth plague when the Lord says, all the firstborn in the land, both of man and beast, all the firstborn males will be slain. Unless you, the Lord passes over because you slay a lamb and put the blood on the doorposts. So that's what takes place. That's the setting for what takes place in Numbers. Second point, because Israel's firstborn sons were saved, that is, they weren't slain, they belonged to the Lord. But the Lord claims the Levites instead. So you read about this narrative. I'm really reducing it, condensing it far more than it should be condensed. But basically, the Lord says, look, I didn't slay all your firstborn. I had a right to do that. There's a sense in which you're no better. You're still sinners. You're just like the Egyptians. But I passed over your sons because you put faith by putting, by your faith, you put blood on your doorposts and I passed over. But your firstborn sons, in some sense, they belong to me because I could have slain them and I didn't. I made provision for them to be saved. They're mine. But I'm not going to take your firstborn sons. I want one of the tribes. It'll be the tribe of Levi. I'm going to take the tribe of Levi instead of all of your firstborn sons from all 12 tribes. So then a little bit of math is done. And this is all in the book of Numbers where the Lord has them count up. How many firstborn sons were there? Exactly. They could have been slain. And there were 22,273. And then the Lord says, now count how many Levites there are that I'm taking instead. And there are 22,000 on the nose. And the Lord says, so I'm being shortchanged 273. And so a redemption price is set so that uh, it makes up for the 273 Levites that the Lord doesn't get. That's all in the book of Numbers. It's a, kind of an interesting story. So let's review. What we have here is the Lord is the conqueror. He receives the Levites as his prize and award. They belong to him. He's the victor. He gained victory over the gods of Egypt. And he set his people free. And what is his spoils? What, are, what is his prize? What is his reward? It's the tribe of Levi in a unique way that is unlike the other 12 tribes. Now let's build on this. In Numbers chapter 8... Verses 9 to 18, it reads like this. And you shall bring the Levites before the tent of meeting and assemble the whole congregation of the people of Israel. When you bring the Levites before the Lord, the people of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. And Aaron, who's the high priest, shall offer the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the people of Israel, that they may do the service of the Lord. Thus you shall separate the Levites from among the people of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. For they are wholly given to me from among the people of Israel. Instead of all who open the womb, the firstborn of all the people of Israel, I have taken them, the Levites, for myself. 
For all the firstborn among the people of Israel are mine, both of man and beast. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated them for myself. And I have taken the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel. So there's the whole transaction. All the firstborn belong to me, but instead I take the Levites. That's the transaction that takes place. And if we ask the question, what does the Lord do with these Levites? Well, they're going to minister before him in the temple. But that's not the whole story. The rest of the story that Paul Harvey's not around to tell you, but I am. The rest of the story is found in Numbers chapter 18. And behold, I have taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you given to the Lord to do the service of the tent of meeting. And you and your sons with you shall guard your priesthood for all that concerns the altar and that is within the veil, and you shall serve. I give your priesthood as a gift. What's happening here is the Lord's like, they're going to do my tabernacle ministry. They're going to minister before me. It's a priestly service. But what was all given to me, I'm gifting back to you. I'm gifting back to you. They're ministering on your behalf. The gift he receives, instead of the firstborn, is the gift he gives back to the people. Well, let's take this and apply it to Ephesians chapter 4. What we have in Ephesians chapter 4 is Christ is the victor. He is the one who ascended on high. Secondly, the Bible makes much of Jesus' ascension in order to stress his power, dominion, and authority. He's the one who ascended. He has He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. All power, authority, rule, and reign belongs to Christ. He's ascended. And then the third point, upon ascending, Christ measures out his gift to the church. What he has a right to rule over, what he has authority over, he then gifts the church with. This is exactly what Peter preached at Pentecost, and it's what is preached through then the rest of the New Testament. So in Acts chapter 2, what Peter preaches is, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, Christ, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. This actually split the Eastern Church and the Western Church in Christianity. This was the big deal between what we all understand as Western Christianity, where St. Augustine is, is very much heralded, and Eastern Christianity, which is like Roman Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox. Uh, it's a, it's, a, it's a, a different uh, path of Christianity. I'm not saying they're outside of Christ, but the big difference was they, Eastern Christianity didn't like the idea that Christ poured out the Spirit. Western Christianity says Christ, in conjunction with the Father, poured out the Spirit. And the Eastern side, they, didn't, they were uncomfortable with that. But to me, that's my reading. Christ pours out His Spirit at Pentecost. The promised Spirit, the Spirit promised by the Father, is poured out by the work of the Son at Pentecost. His right to do it. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit upon His church. Paul is not satisfied with simply saying what I just told you. He's not simply, uh, 
He's not satisfied with simply saying what Christ did. In other words, the idea here, this isn't a hard idea. If somebody gives you a gift and they've poured a lot of effort into it or money into it or time into it, they want to tell you how this gift is maybe more valuable than a face value. Uh, If I just go down to the Dollar Tree and I give you a gift and I'm trying to sell you a big story, what a sacrifice it was, I'd be lying. It's not that big a deal. But if it's something that, and I don't do it because I'm not crafty with my hands, uh, it would be a pretty sad gift if I made something homemade. But let's say I was better at it. Let's say I was more like my son-in-law, Jonathan, and I make this fabulous pipe that's carved and special, and, and I give you that gift, and I tell you like why I chose that wood and how I carved it out and the detail in it all. You know, that gift is valuable because of what went into the gift. All, all somebody gets is the gift... But if a lot went into it, you want to tell that story. That's what Paul wants to do. Because we have a terrific gift poured out upon the church by Christ, but he's not just content saying, oh, and by the way, we've got the gift of the Holy Spirit. We've got this gift of grace, this gift of spiritual giftedness. I want to tell you a little bit of backstory. So that's what Paul does. Paul means to amplify the significance and the importance of what Christ did. Verse 8, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. What host of captives did Christ lead? Because we, we've got the benefit of the gift, but there were some captives taken. And your choices are two. Were these captives enemies of Christ? Or friends of Christ. Now, to be fair, Charles Hodge, which is a 19th uh, century American theologian, Presbyterian theologian, I don't quote Charles Hodge often. It's mostly because I just don't, I don't have time to read him. But Charles Hodge is, is, he's on par with everybody else that I quote that I like so much. Charles Hodge says, I'm not going to choose between the two. They're both true. Who are the captives? They're Christ's enemies. And they are Christ's friends. The friends would be the idea that I was held captive under sin, death, and hell. And Christ won a victory and took me as his captive. And now I'm the captive of Christ. Is that an image in scripture? Yes, it is. Am I glad to be set free from from sin, death, and hell? And now I'm the captive of Christ? Yes, I am. That's one way to look at that passage. But I think... I think in Paul's mind, it really has more to do with the enemies than the friends of Christ, because that fits the context of what Paul's been talking about in Ephesians. So in Ephesians chapter 1, since you only have to turn back a page or two in your Bible, look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him, that's the ascension, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, and authority, and power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, 
who fills all in all. Skip over to Ephesians chapter 6. The captives also are Christ's enemies, which are basically, it's the church's enemies as well. In Ephesians chapter 6, it's the famous passage about putting on all the armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10. Finally be strong in the Lord and in the, and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Who did Christ gain victory over? All those forces that opposed Him. All those forces that still oppose the church. But the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. Because Christ has already won the victory. Another terrific cross-reference is Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Where it succinctly says, He, speaking of God the Father, He, God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Christ gained captives. All those that stood, all those that uh, perverted and twisted his perfect creation when sin entered into the world by Adam, all that is made right by his victory, which we haven't fully experienced yet, but it's already been inaugurated. And it is continued by the church. We carry the banner of all things are going to be made new, starting with me, starting with us. And one day we look forward to all of creation, the curse of sin being removed. That's what we sang about when we started. Then in verses 9 and 10, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. In what sense did Christ also descend? There are two choices. This time it's, it's not so much a both and, but I think there's one right answer. The two possibilities are, in what sense did Christ descend? Well, in the incarnation. He was born of Mary in the little town of Bethlehem and laid in a feeding trough. And he grew up a carpenter's son and had nowhere to call his own. He had no home of his own. He had nowhere to lay his head. He was dependent on, on the kindness and benevolence of other people. He died, he was arrested as a criminal, a political treason to Rome, as a, as a blasphemer of the Jewish concept of God. He was put on a cross and he died, and the third day he rose again. But he, that's a lowering. He descended. The second possibility is for many in the Apostles' Creed, there's the line, he descended into hell. I don't think that's the answer, though. Because uh, that line, he descended into hell, which whenever I have us quote the Apostles' Creed, it's not in there. Because it's not meant to be in there, I don't think. The Apostles' Creed, there's a lot I could say on this, and I don't have time, and you probably don't have the interest. But Wayne Grudem writes uh, seven or eight, maybe nine pages on this in his systematic theology, which is fascinating. The gist of the story is this. The Apostles' Creed was not written by an apostle, or it wasn't written by the apostles getting together and giving us a creed. But the Apostles' Creed is, the idea is, this is what the apostles believed. It's the essence of what they taught. And to some extent, it kind of emerged through church history. 
The line, he descended into hell, is not found in any written form of the Apostles' Creed until 600 years after the Apostles. So it really wasn't introduced, this line, to the church until 600 years after the Apostles. I don't think it belongs. Then Wayne Grudem goes into all the reasons why it doesn't belong. He unpacks it. I would be happy to share that information if that's of interest to you. I'm going to go with it's the incarnation. The humbling of Christ. The one who was celebrated in heaven within the triune God. He shared the glory of his Father. He, He surrendered the right of that worship and that honor and that power and that authority when he came to earth and was made a man. And the first people that celebrated his birth were basically the equivalent of gypsies, shepherds from a field, praising God for this one who's the Savior. But he wasn't recognized as much by the majority, and he didn't even enter public ministry until he was 30. That was a a terrific humbling before this resurrection and ascending to the right hand of the Father. So I take the descent... As in reference to that, you can read about this in Philippians chapter 2, John chapter 3, where Jesus has a discussion with Nicodemus, uh, the one who uh, ascends to the Father is the one who also came down from the Father, and he's referencing himself. In John chapter 6, there are probably six references where I'm the bread who came down from heaven. I descended. I came down. A God who comes down and dwells with his people. He tabernacled with us. He came down. That one who came down is the one who ascended and pours out his gift upon the church. Philippians is the most famous passage of the the bunch. Uh, He emptied himself and came down. Uh, He lived a perfect life. He died even a criminal's death. But he rose again from the dead. And that's the passage that says, Before him every knee will bow and every tongue confess. To the glory of God the Father. Because he's Lord. He's Lord. All this, what Paul's doing, is he's amplifying the significance and the importance of what Christ did. It's not just that Christ gave the church a gift. It's what he, it cost him to give us the gift. It's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. One reason why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're remembering the cost of the gift. It's not just a terrific gift. It's a terrific gift because of what it cost him. And so, the next statement is this. Biblical Christianity is founded on and driven by a personality. Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's different from world religion. World religion gives you a path to follow. A path of tranquility. A path of peace. A path of morality. A path of ethics. Christianity is not so much this path of how do you live your life. We have a personality cult. Christ is our Lord. He is the one we worship. It's about a person, not about a path. He is the path. He is the path. He gave his life. He came down. Those are all the points of the gift. And he has the right to pour out this gift because of who he is. We worship a person, not a path. When it's reduced to a path, we've missed the gospel. Because it's about what he's done, not about what we do. 
The end of all these details that Paul's gone into is the statement that he might fill all things. Phil has the idea of control, exercise power and authority over. He's sovereign over it. He fills those things. And this has been a theme in Ephesians. You read about it, I think I probably already read verses 22 and 23 a minute ago, that he, he's the head of the church. He will fill all things Everything that has ever been touched and tainted by sin, he will exercise the right of redemption and control over, and it will all be made new. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, it's that famous little line about, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. The idea is of control, of exercising authority over. If you are drunk with wine or drunk with anything, Uh, There is a chemical that has control over your body. It affects how you talk. It affects how you walk. It affects how you think and process things. Alcohol controls, uh, when you've drunk to an excess, it controls everything about you. And Paul says, don't do that, but be filled by the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit control how you walk, what you say, what your motivations are, what your priorities are. Let him exercise full control over who you are. That's the idea of filling. That is what is promised in this one who is ascended. He is ascended because he first came down. What are your comments and questions? Joe. So, on this, um, two aspects of the same thing. Yes, I think it can be the same thing. What he receives, he gives. Christ... er, uh, won the right to pour out the Holy Spirit. He, re- he receives all power and authority and worship and praise, and then he takes what he's received, he takes the gift of the Holy Spirit, and he pours it out. So the Father's promise is fulfilled in Christ, pouring out the Spirit at Pentecost. Somebody else? Sarah. That's a great point. It might be part of next week now. <laughs> By the way, I mean, are you, I mean, kind of a really hot topic now. This is off topic, but it reminds me of what you just did. A hot topic right now is chat, GPT or whatever, that thing that Google's invented where it's this uh, artificial intelligence that it can chat with you. So I, after, I fin- after I finished my sermon, I put in, I, I just tried chat GPT for like a, a 30 seconds, I'm like, I asked it, I'm like, give me a basic outline of Ephesians chapter 4, 7 to 11. And it did, and I'm like, dang, that was good. (laughs) I mean, it really pretty much nailed it. I mean, you'd have to fill in a lot of white space, but the outline was spot on. I was really impressed. So next time I'm going to say, chat GPT, give me like the whole deal. (laughs) Chapter 4, verses 11 to whatever I'm going. I don't know, I'd be, I was, I was very impressed. So, actually, that's a great point, and I hadn't thought that far ahead, but the gift we've received, wow, the gift we've received, we are, because that is exactly what the New Testament teaches. It's not for you to bury, it's for you to bless the church with, because all the gifts are given that the church would be built up and encouraged. Wow. Somebody else? It's Hannah. And it makes the gift that much more valuable because now we know what it cost, what was required for us to receive that gift, and the responsibility we have to use our gift to the glory of Christ. Somebody else? Lori. Two 
So there's a difference uh, she's asking about in numbers. They counted all the firstborn. There were 22,273. They counted the tribe of Levi. There's only 22,000. So no, it's not close enough. God's, the Lord says, look, if I would have slain your firstborn, there would have been 22,273. So the fact that I get 22,000 Levites, I'm coming up short, 273. So there is a redemption price paid to the Lord because he was short 273. You can read about it in Numbers. So where does he settle that up? Where? Yeah, I mean, call and claim on the missing 273. Where does he settle that up? Well, you read about it. This is a gift. So the, the 273 technically is... No, the whole, the whole tribe of Levi is the gift. But if the, Lord, the Lord's saying, if I would have slain your firstborn, there would have been 22,273. What I got, instead of slaying that number, I got 22,000. I'm 273 short. And I'm not going to slay the extra 273 because I'm short. You're going to make up the difference. You can read about it in numbers. It's there. Don't read about it. It's, I mean, it's, it's pretty... My point, I did not, because my point is Ephesians, not numbers. Well, it, it explains it. Okay. It's, a, it's, the, it's the concept. Uh, the particular doesn't play into Ephesians. <laughs> Jonathan. Exactly. He, he, yeah. Yeah, it's exactly what he says. The gift I received, I now, I'm gifting back to you. That's what the Lord does. I think that's what's taking place in Ephesians. It's all a fabulous concept. Uh, numbers, numbers is actually a more interesting book than, than it sounds like. Uh, you've also got the whole Balaam and Balak incident in Numbers, which is crazy good. Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.